So hello and welcome to Startup 107 podcast. My name is Sumit Patil and in today's episode I'm joined by Zell Crampton. Zell is the president and CEO of Dixpet which is a D2C innovative pet supplies brand mainly offering dog crates and several other amazing products. Zell first of all thank you so much for your time and welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So tell us a bit more about yourself Zell. Um so I'm from Canada. I uh grew up in Montreal. Um I have a mechanical engineering degree from McGill. Uh I spent a few years doing global supply chain logistics before that was a buzzword on everyone's mind. Um I have uh, an MBA from Columbia. I spent some time working for McKinsey and I started Digs in 2016. Well, I got the idea in 2016. I'd say we we finally launched the business in uh Q4 of 2018, but um you know, I've so I've been kind of done uh the the gambit in terms of operations, supply chain, business strategy, all kinds of stuff. Um I have three kids uh, including two uh, a set of twins and a dog named Louise and my my wife Julie that is great to hear sir so i uh, would love to hear more about dixpet you know how did you come up with the idea and would love to know that startup story sure um so uh, let's start in uh, 2011 um when i went to go do my mba uh, i I've been a lifelong sort of animal lover, pet lover. I had dogs my whole life. I was very passionate about pets and the environment. Um but I never thought that was a career. Uh didn't didn't think much of it. Um but uh one of my closest friends and uh actually a director in Digs is a guy, is a guy named Isaac Langleben. He has a uh he's a CEO of a company called Open Farm and his wife Jacqueline is a CEO and founder of a company called Canada Pooch. They are both very successful pet products and pet food companies um in the pet pet world. And the point I'm making is that I from them I was actually given a first-hand look into how exciting the pet industry actually is. And uh the the, the for those that don't know, uh the pet industry is very large and growing very quickly. And the reason for it is there's so many pe- households that have pets in this country. Um I think it's now up to estimated 80 million households have a, you know, dog or cat in the, in the US and in the end of the world too. So it's a very large market and what's happened is pet people start to treat their pets more like their kids which we call in the industry pet humanization mm-hmm. and what's happened as a result is people are spending more and more and more money on their pets um so you have this interesting thing where p- consumer behavior is changing pro- demands on uh on pet companies has started to change and so you said all oh, lots of interesting innovative companies pop up with lots of investment dollars going to the pet industry So I I said hey this is an opportunity to get into an industry that's really exciting uh, and I I started one pet business in in college didn't ultra, didn't like it started a second business I actually pitched that one to investors they liked it but I actually didn't like it so I pulled the plug on it didn't know what to do but for spent years going to pet conferences and nights and weekends while I was at McKinsey doing my plans for pet businesses Finally in 2016 I had my what I call my aha moment. What it was is I I got my latest dog Louise who I referenced earlier and um I tried to buy the best uh, pet products for her. I was looking, you know, I love her dearly and I wanted to buy her very high quality crates and bowls and leashes and so on and so forth. And I was very surprised to see how kind of low quality most of the products were, how same same no undifferentiated the products were from one brand or even like non-brand company to another. And at the time my friends uh were starting to have children and buy homes I started to become exposed to really exciting brands like Yeti and Upa Baby and uh Simple Human and uh, Dyson and so on and so forth basically companies that have taken mundane consumer hard goods durable categories and uh turned them into sexy sort of lifestyle products uh with really focused on innovation and quality branding aesthetics ergonomics 
all, all using what I, you know, design, like really design centered uh, focus to the products. Um, and so that was the, the, that was the light bulb. I said, you know, I, I set out to make the Appa Baby for pets or the, the, the simple human for pets or Yeti for pets, something like that. And um, so that was the idea in 2016. Um, I started with the dog crate because it's one of these products that as a pet owner, many pet owners get them. But they're they're very they're they're very disliked. Uh, they're ugly. They sit this huge thing in your living room. They're hard to collapse. They're dangerous for your dog. All, all kinds of issues. So the idea was create a, sim, a splashy hero product and then build the brand from there. Um, it took about two and a half years though to come up with the concept, get some seed funding, build the global supply chain, design the products, uh, source materials. You know, hire someone first and then uh, get to market. I mean, it was a it was a big journey to get to market. Um, but finally launched. We did a Kickstarter actually in early 2018, and then a full launch uh, on our on our Shopify website in Q4 2018. And it's been sort of a, a great journey ever since. I'm happy to share some of the details. But you know, we're three years later. We're doing we're well into the eight figures in revenue. We're growing you know three four x every year. Um, you know, we've um, 35 employees now. Um, multiple products. Uh, we have we have great financial sponsors. Close close a sizable Series A earlier this year, thirteen million dollars series thirteen million dollars Series A. Yeah, you know, um, like any business, lots and lots of uh, challenges. But you know, at a, if you look back and look high level, it's going really well. Uh, that is good to hear, sir. But uh, would love to hear more about the product design. And initially, you know, you know when you came up with the idea, uh, did your background kind of helped you in that, or did you hire someone to design the product for you? Uh, I am a tr I am trained as a mechanical engineer, but I like to joke that I speak engineering, but I'm not actually an engineer. I know what people are saying, and I could you know give give feedback sometimes, but I, I can't even open a CAD file. Uh, so I don't know I don't know anything. Uh, no, I had to hire some really smart people. Um, this is actually a fun start a story. I did um, uh, an RFP, a request for proposal process to 55 design firms across, across the country. Uh, and I got proposals from about 19 of them um, to eventually settle on the firm I, we used uh, called uh, Eleven based in Boston, an excellent industrial design firm um, that was, has been a great partner to us. Okay, okay. But Zell would love to hear more about the initial e-commerce launch and did you have some challenges there? You know, there's, it, for, as, a, as someone who's an entrepreneur starting, uh, you know, e-commerce store for the first time with no experience, by the way, I, I kind of just figured it out. But um, it's uh, you turn on the store and for you, it's months, years in the making, all culminating in this very moment. And it's like, it's like, hey, we're here. Open the doors, but no one comes in. It's a, it's a little bit of a, you know, uh, like, you know, when the a balloon deflates. <laughs> I think there's there's probably some companies, uh, you know, I heard the story when Harry's Razors launched, they had like this crazy long email list that they somehow cultivated prior to launch. And so when they turned, when they flipped their switch on, it was an absolute kind of like, you know, show stopping, you know, the, the, the uh, like the website, like overloaded. I don't know. I'm probably, it, maybe the story's got exaggerated over the years, but you know, when Harry's Razors first launched, it was a big deal. Um, I, I did not have that experience. I had the, I had the crickets, um, to be perfectly honest, but, um, you know, it, it, we learned quickly, you know, who was our customer, what they liked about our product, how do we market to them? Uh, and we iterated very quickly. So we improved the product multiple times very quickly. We started to figure out channels that were effective for us, like certainly like everyone else, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Google advertising and how that would work for us, but also emails and the copy on our, on our webpage and, 
uh, you know, sort of some social media, working with a PR firm, like we start all these things, you know, it's almost like a death by, or in this case, not death, but, you know, it, it, death by a thousand cuts is the expression, right? Little things here start to add up to a lot, you know? And, and so by uh, the middle of next year, so this was, you know, October, 2018, and by middle of 2019, we had seen already tremendous uptick in growth and that really accelerated through the end of the year until, you know, I think we did, you know, 60% or 80% of our sales, something like that in Q4 of 20, uh, 2019. Um, and uh, that, that was really exciting to start to see really that uptick and as things start to really kind of fall into place. Some people in the, in the investment in the VC will refer to that the flywheel starts to spin. Good things happen. It leads to more good things. It leads to more good things. And it just gets better and better, like a snowball effect. Absolutely. That, that is great. Zell. But uh, from which channel did you saw real orders coming in? Was it Facebook ads, Google ads, or were you more focused on email marketing at that point of time? Um, we focused on, from an own channel perspective, email heavily, we, we invested, you know, pretty early on in, in some really, really solid email, uh, flows and campaigns and stuff like that, uh, using, uh, Klaviyo. um, certainly like everyone else, a bit of social media. Um, and then from, um, an earn perspective, we did, uh, we, we invested in a small PR firm, which we still work with today. Um, uh, called small PR, uh, led by a woman named Jillian, um, that we, that, that was something we invested on in early to start to get some media and some, um, you know, even if it was small media, it was just to start getting validation that, you know, for the customers, because customers need reviews or media to tell them, yeah, this is okay to buy. And that was a good place for us to start. And then we definitely went into Facebook, Instagram, and Google advertising to start as well. Okay. Okay. Interesting. But uh, Zill, I just want to go back a bit. Uh, one of the terms which I heard a lot from you in almost all the podcasts which I listened to you on is ethnography. Uh, would love to hear more about it because I think it's really interesting to to understand ethnography, in, especially in the product design part of it. Sure. Yeah, I love talking about that. Um, so for... For the folks listening, ethnography is a form of research that is very, very much based on observation. Uh, broadly speaking, and I'm using huge generalizations as I go through this, but to simplify, there's two kinds of research, quantitative and qualitative. Quantitative, you can think of surveys, you know, you're, you're adding things up and measuring. Qualitative is, you know, you're using uh, non non-numeric forms of measurement and analysis to come to conclusions. Uh, people are very familiar, generally speaking, with things like, um, um, you know, doing like watching, you know, uh, like panels of customers who, uh, who test products and stuff like that, like a panel. Um, ethnography is a bit different where you, um, you, you it's, a, it's a term borrowed from um, other, other fields of research where you go into the, the wild, for example, and animals and stuff like that. You can go do field, field observation to see uh, how, how the animals behave in their natural habitat. Uh, most famous from that was um, Jane Goodall with the chimpanzees, and I think it was in the 70s or 80s. And you know, she go went and lived with the chimpanzees in Africa, and uh, she spent months, I think, just watching them and living with them, and actually got accepted into them. And by being there and watching, being part of it, uh, mm -hmm. she was able to get so much more insight into how they behaved and 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 how uh, what was interesting about their um, their social interactions and so on and so forth. Uh, well, the consumer products world um, has, has borrowed from that concept to say, hey, can we learn about what, what cut opportunities exist in product design by watching how customers use products today in the environments in which they use them? So 
think about, I think people are familiar with the Swiffer. Well, that wasn't, that came out of ethnography where people from, I think it was PMG went to be, Procter and Gamble, went to people's homes and saw how people were using mops and how like they did things that were like strange workarounds or they would, you could see how like think, there was a frustration or a pain point, but you wouldn't see that if you were not watching them use the product because sometimes people do things and they don't even realize they're doing it. You know, and very often people have, uh, it will use a product and do a, work with it in a way that they don't even realize they're doing. So if you ask them, they couldn't tell you that. You have to see it. You have to see how they use it. Um, and so, you know, we're a big believer that in order to do true innovation, you need to go into the environment in which both, we have two customers, by the way, in our world, the pet and the parent, where you can observe the pet and parent uh, in their quote unquote natural habitat, which is usually their home, but it can be on a walk, which we've done many, many walks and stuff like that it can be in a dog park. And just talk to people and observe how they are using the products. Um, and what you typically find in our case is not only um, sort of pain points, but unmet needs. It's like the, the famous example that everyone's familiar with is you didn't know you needed an iPhone until you had an iPhone. The customer could not have told you, oh, I want a phone that you could touch this and it could do, it's like, no, that's, they can't tell you that. But I'm sure the folks at Apple observed, you know, they saw this technology and they observed how people were fumbling and had issues with their phone and they combined those features together. And so, you know, the, the short version of a long story is ethnography is a big part of our process. We're very big on sort of data-driven insights. And we, um, we use that to our advantage to figure out how we can differentiate from products on the market and solve, pro solve problems and unmet needs and, and address unmet needs in, in, in new and creative ways that other companies have not thought of thus far. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Zell. But uh, you have a huge emphasis on customer service and uh, would love to hear more about it and how it should be handled in D2C space. Look, I mean, a customer service is, uh, is important. I mean, at the end of the day, customer service is how a brand typically, especially in a DTC context, interfaces with the customer. It's, it's really, uh, in some ways, it's the most important touch point with the customer. Sure, your colors, your your copy and your language, your websites, your ads, your emails, all these things touch the customer and they're all critically important, of course. But if a customer calls you or if a customer emails or chats with you, that's really the, the going to have one of, if not the most important sort of lasting impression of, of a, co a company um, when, they, when they talk to them. And, and customer service is more or less important in terms of the quality, the speed, et cetera, depending on a few factors, including, you know, what your what your company strategy is certainly uh what market are you in some markets it's more important than others um if you're using it as a differentiation tool or not i guess that's part of strategy but uh and then kind of where you're placed from a uh, uh how you want to be placed in the, kind of as your brand in, in terms of the premium to you know lower economy part of the, the market um in our case you know we're a premium brand so already expectations on service are higher with our customers off the bat uh, and also in our space, pets, you know, people are so, so passionate and rightfully so, of course, about their pets and they care so much about finding the right products and having uh, safe products and they want the best for their pets. And so, you know, they do expect to get really, really good service, even if even more so than they would from other types of companies. That's honestly the reason, in my opinion, anyway, amongst other things, but one of the biggest drivers of Chewy success in the pet space is because of their emphasis and quality of customer service. In fact, they're you know, in some ways the gold standard, certainly for a company of their size. Um, and so, you know, some companies put customer service in the operations department, we put in the marketing department because for us, efficiency matters, certainly from a cost perspective, but more important is 
are we delivering the right service? Are we delivering the right message? Are we giving enough care um, to our to our um, to our customer? And you know, so we've invested heavily there. Uh, we have a fantastic um, head of customer service. Uh, his name's Jeff. Phenomenal. I actually came. He's actually a former from Chewy, actually. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, great, great, great. Uh, we call it the care team in, in our case, and a lot of great agents who really are really empathetic. Just want nothing more than to kind of respond quickly, address whatever issues customer or pet parents, as we call them, uh, are having, and do so uh, in, to the best of their ability. So, you know, it's certainly become uh, a really important focus area for us, and I think customers have responded well, and, and I, I think there's been some word of mouth um, because of that. Uh, that's great to hear, sir. But uh, what has been the most challenging part of building Dick's Pet so far? Oh, and there's so many challenges. I'll get, I mean, I'll, the biggest one, I think, prior to uh, our fund uh, this year was probably fundraising. You know, we're, it was tough on many levels. At first, it was tough just to raise sort of family and friends money because, you know, you have to, you have to kind of picture that there's this pet market where, uh, let's say, t- take dog crates. At the time, um, you know, you could buy a dog crate for $40 on Amazon or Chewy. And I'm mm-hmm. telling people we're going to make a dog crate that's like five times the cost. I literally had people say you're insane. Oh, <laughs> okay. that, I had people literally use those words. Um, but you know, I actually believe you know sometimes maybe it's just like this is foolish entrepreneur in me. But like to me, sometimes that's actually an indicator of like, oh, I'm I'm onto something here. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in following the crowd. Uh, if if everyone looks left, you should look right because that's where like people are not looking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually kind of motivated me a little bit more, not so much to prove people, but to say. If everyone thinks I'm crazy, no one's looking here. That means there's like white space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that, that, that was the first sort of hurdle. Like I had to get over the fact that people thought I was crazy. But uh, you know, what eventually got me there is people who understood the pet market. So a lot of our early investors are actually strategic, strategic investors from the pet industry, like big uh, other companies in the pet industry. Um, that was the mm-hmm. first thing. And then uh, the second was when I started to explain, hey, look, look what happened in the baby products market. Look what happened in the, in the cooler market. Look what happened in you know, the vacuum market. People are like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. You know, so that started to help. But then later on, you know, we don't fit, when it comes to raising money in, from institutional investors, so VCs and private equity funds and so on, um, you have to fit in their box, generally speaking. You know, the box has a few dimensions to it, like, are you the right? industry are you the right uh size in terms of you know revenue or stage of company or whatever the case may be right are you uh do you have like all the pieces of a puzzle that they're looking for some like different different funds have different theses it's about team or it's about you know xyz factors right very often particularly in the vc world um they're looking for certain kinds of businesses and they all, it's not even looking for, sometimes they're mandated to look for certain kind of businesses that have the profile that can generate the excess returns down the road, right? Think like, you know, a SaaS business, right? Where um, you, if you get like a, cor- you know, um, uh, a corporate client on your SaaS product, it's extremely sticky, very high margin, and it's like repeating revenue for years and years to come. And that's why like, you know, the valuations for companies like that are so high if you're successful, and that's a big if. Uh, for companies like ours, we are more of a traditional consumer products company, um, you know, where we make a widget, we make money on that widget, and, you know, we're first order profitable, right? Um, and that's, the, it's a, just a different model. And so we're much more, uh, the types of investors that get excited about our business are called growth equity funds or, or more traditional private equity. But those types of investors don't usually invest until much later stage as compared to VCs. 
um, you know, some, some won't even invest until they can deploy 20 or $25 million checks. Um, and so the point I'm making is we were kind of like, you know, the old Goldilocks story, the story too hot, too cold for most funds, right? Oh, you're too early. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. So we had to, I had to find a way like through various, you know, debt, debt instruments and fam, small family and friends run uh, around, get us big enough to when the private equity funds, the growth, the growth equity funds really started to look at it seriously. Uh, and so that was really the financing challenge over time is to find kind of scrappy ways to finance the business until you're, until you're, until you are the fit for uh, a serious institutional investor. And that was our case. And, you know, when we closed our series A, uh, we finally got big enough and, and interesting enough to our great, really great um, financing partners uh, led by Ben Growth Partners uh, out of Toronto and supported by Strand Equity based out of LA. Brilliant. Uh, Selvan, final question. What's your vision for Dixpent? I think we will be the kind of preeminent global brand of innovative pet supplies. You know, the Yeti for pet, right? I think uh, that means multinational, multi-product, lifestyle brand, uh, high quality, synonymous with innovation and safety, you know, pe- product that people are proud to show off to their, to their friends and family. Awesome. With that, Zim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Sure.